Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Jason Sweat, who is a technical writer, host of the Rails with Jason podcast, and is currently a software engineer at Metals Eye. Jason joins us today from Michigan. Jason Sweat, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Thanks for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, maintainable software? I would say that maintainable software or maintainable code is code that is easy to understand and change. What are some prerequisites, do you feel like, that help make sure that it's easy to change? Well... First of all, if it's hard to understand, then it's going to be hard to change. And that's kind of the main thing to me. The understandability and the changeability are very intertwined. And there's some other considerations like loose coupling versus tight coupling and stuff like that. But I feel like that's kind of a secondary consideration. And the main consideration is just, can I understand this stuff? And then another thing, you know, I'm kind of known as the Rails testing guy. If your code doesn't have tests, then it's going to be pretty hard to change because any change you make, you don't know if that's going to introduce some kind of regression or not. And so you might be able to physically make the change. You might be able to look at the code and say, oh, I get what's happening here. The change needs to happen right here. And that part's easy. But then what? You can't just deploy that because you don't know if you've broken anything. So that's another um, aspect of it for sure. So there's a certain level of confidence, I suppose, that you're, you have at that point when your understandability and confidence kind of go in hand to hand? Or can you, like, I have a decent enough understanding of the, the system as a whole that I, I'm hoping nothing breaks? Or Yeah, it's all about the confidence. Because you, like you said just now, if you make a change and you have a decent enough understanding that you hope nothing breaks, then it's still just a hope. Because I have this saying, that I never underestimate my own ability to screw stuff up. And it's amazing. You can make a change on a system that you know very well, and you can have a high level of confidence based on nothing, but just like an emotional level of confidence that you haven't broken anything. And sure enough, you actually did break something because software is just so complicated that you can't know that you haven't broken anything without actually checking. Right. Do you, you know, when you think about that sort of scenario where you're making a change on something you're feeling pretty confident about, but maybe there's a lack, and I want to dive really a lot deeper into testing, but one of the things you had mentioned was the the tight coupling versus loose coupling. What do you, what is, for those listening that might not know what that kind of, can you give like a tangible example of that, what the distinction is? Sure. So two things are tightly coupled if one of them depends very heavily on the other. So I don't know if you have one piece of code where maybe a method signature is a good example, like the one piece of code depends on the method signature of another piece of code. And if you change one, then you have to change the other. That's, oh, let me give a better example, actually. The, the most tight coupling you can do, I think, is when you have a dependency, like if you have a method that creates an instance of an object, for example, then that method is very highly dependent on that object. And the alternative to that you can consider 
is if you instead pass an instance of that object as an argument to that method. Not only do you not have to know how to create that method inside that, I'm using the wrong words all over the place, but you don't know how, you don't have to know how to instantiate that object inside the method, but that object doesn't even have to be an instance of a specific class anymore. Because as long as that object that you're passing in responds to the API that the client expects it to be able to respond to, then you're good and you can swap it out for a different class or whatever. And you're free to do a lot more refactoring than if you, if you tightly couple it and make reference to that class and actually instantiate that object inside the method. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And in that type of scenario, would you be advocating that they instantiate that earlier in the process and then they call that, say, method or something, and then, and then it takes advantage of that, giving it, like having it do things within that other class? Basically, the less that the receiving method knows about the implementation, the more loosely coupled it's going to be and the more freedom you're going to have to refactor. Do you often use the metaphor of technical debt in your day-to-day work? No, I don't. Well, kind of. I don't know. But there's this other analogy that I actually like more, which is, okay, so here's the beef that I have with technical debt. As a metaphor, it works great in a lot of ways because there's a lot of parallels. Like you have this technical debt and when you have it, you have to pay this like technical interest and so that, that part of the metaphor maps really neatly, and I like that. But there's a crucial difference between technical debt and actual financial debt, which is that with financial debt, you can avoid it. You can choose just not to get a credit card and not to take on any debt. But when you're programming, you can't just say, I'm not going to live debt-free in my application. You can't do that. Because technical debt will accrue no matter what if you're not constantly refactoring. Because no piece of code are you going to get it right on the first try. And especially if you, if, so if you think about like one single feature, it's, it's unlikely that you're going to get your code the best possible way on your first pass. You're probably going to have to build your feature and then refactor and make it a little nicer. But that is way more true even across a whole code base. Like you're certainly not going to work on a code base for two years with a team of 10 people and step back and say, wow, we did everything exactly perfect and we don't need to refactor anything. No, you need to constantly be refactoring as you're building that whole thing. And so that's why I say that technical debt is not avoidable because technical debt will get into your code base even without you doing anything wrong. Each individual part of your code can be beautiful, but then as a whole, it might not make complete sense because the reality that you're with now is different from the reality when you started. So the analogy that I like better is the analogy of a saw blade. You have the saw blade, and with use, the blade gets duller, and periodically you have to take some time and sharpen that saw. I think that analogy is kind of more fitting. Interesting. You know, I think, you know, you were saying that code or the application software needs to regularly be refactored to avoid technical debt. I know that teams aren't always just allocated enough just to just focus on sharpening necessarily. Uh, you could keep refining, I think, up to a 
certain point, I mean, I'm assuming like using the blade as an example, at some point it's, can you get any sharper, but then you need to use it. Right. And so there's that, I guess I'm trying to understand a little bit more about how teams that are working with their systems and things are working and they're like, well, we're not adding any new functionality to that area of the application. So it's, it's okay right now. It seems to be doing what it needs to be doing. Are you thinking that teams need to be regularly going back in there and revisiting that stuff on a regular basis, even if they're not necessarily making any functional changes outside of maybe keeping up with uh, version bumps of their the libraries that they're using? So I'll say two things about that. One is that in my saw blade analogy, there's not just a single saw. There's like a whole garage full of saws. And you can think of each area of your code base as one saw. And if you have a saw that's dull, but you never touch that saw, if you never actually use it, then you don't need to sharpen it. And it's going to be a waste of time to sharpen it, potentially. And so I leave my saws alone to an extent until I go back and I need to pick up that particular saw. And then I say okay, I need to saw some wood with this saw. Oh, wait a second. This saw is actually super dull. Let me sharpen this saw and then I can use it. So I like to refactor before I make a change because the time before I make a change, that's when I only really know how sharp that saw needs to be. And that's only when I like find out that the saw is is dull at all. So so that's, that's the one thing I wanted to say. The other thing I wanted to say is... Um, most teams don't have a problem of their saws are too sharp. And so this fear of people gold plating and stuff like that, that's a real concern. That, like you can refactor too much and polish too much, but for most teams, their issue is way on the other side. And you mentioned earlier that you're kind of known as the Rails testing guy. You know, out of curiosity, what is it about Ruby on Rails that has captured your attention so much over the years? Oh man. Well, to answer that question, I'll have to put it in context. For like seven years before I came to Rails, I did PHP. And prior to that, I did Java and Perl and Windows desktop programming. And so when I came to Rails, so I'll try to make a super long story, not very long. But I had used PHP for a while, didn't have much of an opinion one way or the other on it. And then I started using Lisp and I really enjoyed Lisp. And I came back to PHP and I'm like, wow, what is this garbage? All of a sudden, I like my opinion of it was way lower after having used Lisp some. But at the time, it wasn't really practical to go get a job as a Lisp programmer. And so I started evaluating some other languages that were kind of inspired by Lisp to an extent. And I landed on Ruby and Python. And so I evaluated Rails and Django. And between those two, Rails just seemed to make a lot more sense. Like the features that I expected to be there were there. You know, there's that principle of least astonishment. Rails violated the principle of least astonishment a lot less than Python and Django. It was great. Like when you when you have an object and you do dot length or you know dot whatever, I I've, it turned out that a lot of the time my guess about what I could type after the dot was correct. And it's like, oh, this is great. And that wasn't so true with Django. It's interesting. It's kind of like the, I think back to a similar-ish background to you with doing a lot of PHP and Perl, some Python prior to Ruby on Rails. And there was that, the readability, I think was a big part of 
like what attracted me to it. I didn't feel like I was looking up methods as, as often in like the PHP documentation and like, okay, what's blah, whatever, underscore, underscore, whatever these various method names are. It's been a long time since I've done a lot of PHP work, but, uh, it was just always curious what kind of lured people here and into this community. Um, I know that maintainable podcast isn't necessarily a Rails focus, but I do talk with a lot of people within the Rails community because that's my community. So, you know, and I know that you're working right now on a new technical book titled Beginner's Guide to Rails Testing. Could you share some details about that? Oh, sure. That is out there. It's a free guide rather than a, than a book, I'd say. But I put that together over the last few weeks based on what I've learned in the last three years or so about how to teach Rails testing. Because even though I've been blogging about Rails testing and, and putting out other kinds of content, it has only been in the recent few months that I've really figured out how to actually teach it. And so I took the most common questions and I distilled that into just a PDF, and that's what that's all about. Nice. And... I would imagine um, one of the challenges that a lot of developers face is working on projects where code's been around for a while and they don't, haven't maybe, maybe there was some intention of producing tests and staying on top of that because Rails definitely encourages you to do that. It's definitely like, you know, when you, if you use any of the generators, it spits, you know, puts the methods or the, the tests where they need to be. So you're like, cool, now start filling it in with some tests and whether or not that's actually always done is a whole other topic, but it does kind of nudge people in that direction. So everybody can, in a Rails app, get, say, their code to test ratio by running a command, and it'll tell you whether or not you've done anything to write tests is a whole other topic. And that's, I'm curious if you've seen some patterns of how, as you've worked on different projects, of how teams have been able to overcome that where they have an existing code base that has very little or tests that were written several years ago that no one's really kept working on because nobody else seems to be. Um, how do you help coach those types of people? This is a question that comes up a lot, the question of how do I add tests to an existing Rails project or an existing project period? And that's a question that's kind of unanswerable without more information because it depends on a lot of things. Like, okay, so first of all, where are you coming from? Do you have testing experience already or do you have no test? Does this application not have tests because you built it and you don't have any testing experience? Because the, the path forward from there is much different from the path forward if you are a very experienced Rails tester and you just inherit a project that doesn't have tests. And I'll, I'll address that. If you don't have any testing experience, then my advice would not be to try to add tests to this existing projects as your first foray into testing. Because there's two distinct things you're gonna to have to learn. You're gonna to have to learn testing, and then you're gonna to have to learn the skill of adding tests to an existing project, which I know that you know, Robbie, is a whole different skill in itself. And so if you try to add tests to an existing project with no experience, you're gonna be trying to do these two very difficult things in tandem, and it's probably not going to go, it's at least not going to go quickly. So my advice would be to spin up a separate track and teach yourself testing on a fresh project. Then once you gain a certain level of comfort there, come back to your, your original project and maybe you can apply some of, some of what you've learned there. Now I'll say if you're already comfortable with testing, then it depends on a different set of factors. 
what's your team like? Are your teammates comfortable with testing or are they not? Do your teammates agree that you should add more tests? Because if you're the only person on a team of eight who thinks we should add tests to the project, then you might not get very far with that endeavor. And then there's another question about leadership. Is leadership on board? Because again, if the dev team wants to add tests, but leadership is explicitly against adding tests, for example, then again, you're probably not going to get very far. So I think all those things need to be considered first. And then let's say leadership's on board, the whole team's on board. Then I think you have to figure out how are you going to approach it? Because I've seen teams before say, all right, new rule, all new code has to have tests. And that like <laughs> that doesn't work because you have to decide how you're going to do it. What tools are we going to use? What do we want the picture to look like six months from now? Like, do we want to focus on adding tests on the back end, JavaScript side, both? What tools are we going to use for those things, if so? And all that stuff. So developing a shared vision with the team is, is important. And then once you've gotten all that stuff out of the way, then you can begin actually adding tests. And my advice in that area would be, even though it might seem logical to start by testing what's most important, and I see people give that advice sometimes, I don't think you should start with what's most important because what's most important is also likely to be the most non-trivial and therefore the most difficult to add tests to. So I'd say actually start with what's easiest and then expand outward from there. I think there's a lot of good perspectives in there too for listeners to reflect on. I know that the you know, I've seen teams where we've, we come in to provide some assistance for a little while and, you know, we'll see like, oh, there's one or two people like, well, so-and-so used to write, write tests, but they're not really working on the project so much anymore or they've left and no one really knew how to pick it up and continue because there wasn't like, it's like, oh, well, sure, just go read up. You know, everybody can go to do some searches on the internet and look up on how to write some tests. So easy enough, right? Uh, go look at the RSpec documentation, you know, that, that's how you do it, right? But to sit down and actually like walk through the process with someone else. Um, I've always felt like there's needing to be that someone to kind of take, at least plant that flag and be like, hey, I'm going to take that effort. I'm, I'm going to take it on. I'm going to start bringing our test suite back to life again, you know, whether it's been failing for a long time or they've just commented them all out or, I, you know, I've seen it all over the years because there's just like, a, well, they don't run. They haven't run for se- several years, so I'm afraid to go try it again because it seems like a rat's nest to figure it out. Um, so I think, I think that's some interesting, some good advice to start on something separate. Do you think it's a, you know, you mentioned the leadership being on board. Do you think it's that there's a lot of, do you actually believe that there's a lot of leadership people, people in leadership positions that are saying, don't bother with that right now? Or is it that they're maybe developers? I'm curious if developers are like, well, I feel like I brought it up, but they didn't really seem to be on board. So I interpreted it as them saying no, but I don't know that the leadership team or product owners are necessarily wanting to say, did you test your code? There's different ways of how you test your code, I suppose. No one wants untested software, I think, at a, you know, at a high level. Uh, but I think developers think of testing in a couple different ways and, and most often probably in an automated sense. Well, I have no idea the percentage of people in leadership roles who are anti-testing, but I know that it's more than zero. There, there are people out there who are explicitly anti-test, which sounds crazy, but those people exist. And maybe it's because they view testing as something extra. It's like, well, how much will this project cost? Okay, well, how much will this project cost if we skip tests? How much less would it be if we skip tests? 
It's like, no, it's going to cost more if we skip tests. Tests aren't an extra thing that adds time. Tests are a time saver. So whatever their reasons are, I I don't know. And I don't know what percentage of of people these are, but unfortunately they are out there. No, and I get that. Otherwise, you know, and there's there's just the other ways that you can test something, whether or not you have full-time QA people or, you know, whatever your your team's process might look like to account, you know, offset that. So I think it's interesting, you know, when, let's say your people listening, they're like, okay, I have a decent understanding of how to write tests in my particular language or framework that we're working with. No one's asked me to do it, do those extra things, but I kind of want to, but I'm not really sure which area of the tests to maybe start with. I know you mentioned like the example, like start with something that's an important, I've, I've often rephrased that as like, what are some of like the mission critical aspects of the to the application, like if this thing breaks, you want to know about it more than anything else probably. But I also agree with you that those are not always the simplest areas to start writing tests. And then you also mentioned like JavaScript or related to front end type tests versus uh, unit testing and there's all the different layers there. Have you found that there are certain types of tests that seem to have payoff for like on, on average for most teams? Or I know that there's always that context of like, well, it's kind of specific to that specific project, but What's been your take there? Mm, no, I don't really know of, of one specific area or kind of test that has had more payoff than others just because I haven't had the vi- visibility across projects to be able to know that. My take is that what you get value out of is having good test coverage across the entire application because it's a little bit of a binary thing. Either you have confidence or you don't. If you have relatively complete test coverage, and test coverage is something we can talk about too, I have a potentially controversial opinion on test coverage. But if you have sufficient test coverage, then you can make basically any change. Like for example, I recently made a change where we um, reformatted over a thousand files in the application, and then the test passed, and I deployed it, and there were no problems. Um, And that comes from having a sufficient confidence across the whole entire application. We'll be back with our interview with Jason in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Jason Sweat. You, know, you, you just mentioned that you have a controversial perspective on, say, code to test ratio. And in, 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 uh, here at Planet Oregon, we run a survey every few years on in the community, and one of the things we talk about with what are the test-to-code ratios that people are aiming for, and usually 80% gets often referenced as a as a an ideal. What do you believe an ideal range is for a team to aim for? So my take is that it's the wrong question to ask, and so I don't have a specific percentage. I think you should make your judgment based on some some different considerations. So I think you should take a measurement of certain things, and that'll tell you if you have too too many or too few tests, most likely too few. And those are the following. If you have too many bugs, that's one. 
And, you know, all software has bugs, but you can kind of tell if you have way more than what seems reasonable. If you're doing too much manual testing, I've worked at places where we couldn't do a release without days and days of manual testing. That's a sign you need more tests. If you're not able to deploy frequently, then that's a sign too. If you don't feel safe in doing big refactorings or big changes, then that's another sign. Here's an interesting one, poor code quality. Um, So I came to the conclusion recently that it's actually not possible to have high quality code without tests. And the reason for that is because as we talked about earlier, refactoring is necessary in order to keep that saw sharp. So if, if you don't perform refactoring somewhat regularly, you necessarily will end up with poor quality code. And if you don't have tests, you can't refactor. And so if you don't have tests and you can't refactor and you can't have good code without refactoring, then you can't have good code without having tests. So that's one. And then the last one is um, a diminished ability to hire and retain talent. If you have good developers who, who know what they're doing and want to follow good development practices, they come to your organization, the code is low quality, you can hardly get a deployment out, you don't have tests, then that's a sign that you need more tests too. So rather than saying you should shoot for 80% coverage or whatever, I say listen to these factors and wherever it hurts, look at that and say, is the problem here that I don't have enough tests? Because it likely is. I'm curious if you know these questions that you're asking teams to to ruminate on, if they're what what defines too many bugs? I feel like they're they're very subjective type of uh, sentiments, I suppose, for a team to have uh, compared to relative to what, right? And so, um, and that's not something that uh, we can automate. I think one of the things we the reason why developers latch on to things like very specific things like oh, eighty percent coverage because it's really easy for us to get that number. Right, it's like you run. You can literally run a command. You can automate your CI pipeline to like reject something if like you, the the test suite percentage is dropping a little below a certain percentage. But oh, we've been introducing too many bugs. There's not necessarily a uh, an easy way to determine that if everybody can share that same agreement. I know that so this requires a lot of conversations. It seems like right for within a team to assess those things. Exactly. And by the way, quick side note, just for my own credibility's sake, I want to share that last time I checked, my test coverage was about 96%, and that's what it's consistently been throughout the project. So by following my own guidelines, that's what I end up with. But to answer your question, yeah, so it's a completely emotional thing. And I think this is a case where it makes more sense to to listen to your intuition and emotions and subjective measures rather than objective measures because not everything in life is objective and measurable. And this is a case where I think it's not. So how do you know if you have too many bugs? If it feels like there's too many bugs, then you have too many bugs. And if it doesn't feel like you have too many bugs, then you don't. And of course, an important consideration is who feels like there's too many bugs. Maybe you feel like there's too many bugs, but you talk to your boss and it's not the issue for your boss. That's one thing. That doesn't necessarily mean that your boss wins in that situation and and they're right and you're wrong. Or maybe you don't feel like there's too many bugs, but your boss does, in which case you probably need to address something. But that for me, you you go by your feelings rather than some kind of number because I don't know how you would go by a number. 
It's interesting. You know, I think of uh, our, our, we use like Bugsnag for as a bug tracking tool. And there's a few projects that we've inherited that just have lots of little bug things that pop up here and there. And we're like, and the client's like, let's not even worry about that, but we'll, we'll hire someone and they'll come in and be like, what the hell's going on? Like, we're just ignoring all these bugs. Like this has got thousands of bugs apparently. And we're like, well, they don't seem to be like actually tripping anything up. I don't know. Which it's just like we could spend forever working on those, but that's not what the client's asking us to prioritize right now. But then it could also feel like, well, this seems like too many bugs compared to where I was previously at, where we tried to just squash everything that ever popped up because we had a really reliable system there. And so I think it's always like an interesting conversation to try to navigate that, where you also don't want to necessarily wave everything off, being like, well, we as as an organization just generally ignore bugs that don't happen a lot because sometimes it could be that one bug that that happens and it only happens once but it's really disastrous because not like bug tracking tools can often help you like understand the severity of that specific incident and so yeah yeah and there's a couple considerations there so like one is of course you can't let your stakeholders completely tell you how to do your job and so like if there's a bug that isn't a problem for users but is making your life as a developer miserable then I think it's reasonable to say like, hey, I know you don't care about this bug, but I do because it affects me. So let me just take two hours and fix this because otherwise I'm, I'm going to go nuts here. I think that's completely reasonable. These little bugs, these are what I call broken windows. So there's that famous broken windows syndrome, broken windows study thing where there is this neighborhood and it was a nice neighborhood, low crime. And then some windows got broken, and then there was some graffiti, and then there started being a little more petty theft and, and other small crimes, cars up on blocks and stuff like that. And then like things ended up getting really bad, and there's murders and more serious crimes and stuff like that. And then people came in, and they started repairing these broken windows, scrubbed the graffiti off the buildings. Then the murders stopped. Now we just have petty theft again and stuff like that. And then they they take these cars that were up on blocks, get those out of there, and then the neighborhood goes back to being nice again. And so it's a total exact parallel with software. Like if you let these little broken windows remain, then people kind of develop an opinion that like, oh, this whole system's kind of a piece of crap. Let's, you know, who cares even? And things just get worse and worse. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. For, for those listening, maybe they felt like they've talked to management or leadership or the stakeholders, whatever that relationship looks like, a few times and have brought up like, well, I don't feel like we're able to spend as much time investing in improving what's already there instead of chasing down new things, then we feel like we're making a bigger mess. And outside of them saying, I think if we don't, like maybe you mentioned like employee retention is like a big part of 
why this is important, but aside, before they decide to go look for a new job, finally, or go accept a new job somewhere else, what advice would you offer them on how to approach that conversation with someone who's like, I really need to take care of this. I know you just gave that one example, but maybe there's, there's a team there where they don't know whether or not everybody even on the team agrees with them yet. What would it might be some effective ways of having those conversations? Or would you ever advocate that they just start doing it and ask for forgiveness later? <laughs> yes, I would. Um, so, yeah, you have three options in that scenario. You, you mentioned all three of them. You can, you can leave or you can start making those improvements secretly or you can try to persuade the people you need to persuade to come around to your opinion. And I think that I would approach those in maybe the opposite order that I just mentioned them in. I, I first would make an appeal, and then if that didn't work, I'd try to just make the improvements anyway in secret, and then if none of that worked, then I would just leave. But it's a super interesting question of how to convince somebody who, okay, so just to make sure we're talking about the same thing, this scenario is I have a boss or a stakeholder or a client or whoever, they don't really want the development team to spend the time working on this important but not urgent work to improve the production capacity as opposed to doing the important and urgent work of actually producing results, doing quote-unquote real work. Is, is that kind of the scenario? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So this opens a whole new can of worms of like psychology and persuasion and stuff like that. And so if you're in that scenario and it genuinely is really important for you to try to convince this person and to like change your whole job and everything's going to be terrible if you don't do it, then I would suggest making a serious study of the psychology of persuasion. So a couple books in that area are How to Win, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie and then The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Both those books are great in terms of explaining how to get somebody else to come around to your way of thinking. And a big part of that, in my opinion, is like if you have a good relationship with the person you're trying to persuade, you're going to have a lot better of a, a shot at making the case than if you don't have a good relationship or if you don't have a relationship at all. If the person you want to persuade is kind of distant and a relationship with them is not really possible, which I think is unfortunately often the case, then it's probably just going to be a tough road and you should set your expectations accordingly. But if you have a good re relationship with the person, then here's what I would do. I would ask, hey, what's your opinion of how things are going? Are things going good? Are things going bad? How would you like to see things change and be different in like six months from now or, or whatever? Do you have any suggestions for, for how things could be different? And then once I, once I laid that foundation, you know, first we've agreed on something together. We've agreed that we aren't super happy with how things are now and we want things to be better in the future. Then I would start to talk with them. How do we fix that? And then I would ask, do you want to hear some of my ideas as to how we can do these things. And one of my suggestions would be, okay, we have these, you know, there's that, I think they call it the Eisenhower quadrant of the important and urgent, urgent, not important, blah, blah, blah. There's the four items. And I would say, I know that it's appealing to work on these urgent and important quadrant one activities, but in order to be able to maintain our capability to put out those quadrant one activities, we have to work on these quadrant two 
important but not urgent activities so that we can maintain our productivity in the long run. And here's what that might look like. That's how I'd approach that. I think that's a really thoughtful approach there. I, I'm, you know, I talked to a number of people about this sort of thing, and I hadn't really heard that type of phrasing around, like, they're just having that conversation initially and getting the stakeholder, whomever, to open up and share how they're feeling about things, and then trying to then attach maybe some of the ideas that you have later on to as a possible way to alleviate some of the challenges that that person has versus you coming to them being like, there's a problem that I, I see there's a problem and I have the solution for it. Can you give me a, you know, can you green light this for me or whatever? And, and then now they're in the position of being like, Oh, well, is that important right now? And you know, you haven't really got them into that say emotional state of, or even just reflecting on like, okay, we have a shared sentiment about how the current state of things that we both agree things probably could be better. How do we do that? And I think that's some interesting ideas. And at least it allows them to also share some of their ideas as well um, so that you don't have to feel like the the hero necessarily. And I think one of the thing, challenges, something for me to reflect on, and even how I ask this question to our, my guests or in some ways offering advice is to think about, you know, there's the hero's journey, right? And people like to read those things, but in that sense, but we also have this idea that we're we're problem solvers as software developers. We're often trying to fix things and re, and we spot things, look for patterns, and try to resolve them. And so we want there's kind of like this in, intrinsic aspect of wanting to solve the thing and be the one that figures it out. But sometimes we need to let someone else feel like they're also solving the problem too, and not doing it on you know we're doing it and we're just taking care of it because that's our job as software developers. Exactly. People are much more likely to get on board with an idea if they feel like it's their idea. And so that's that's the like psychological kung fu of it. And Socrates used to do that. He would when he wanted to persuade somebody of something, he would get them answering yes to questions. So he would start with premises that they both agreed on. And if you start that way and you get on the same side, then it's so much easier to do everything downstream because you you start with saying, okay, we agree, we want the same thing. Now we're just talking about the details of how to achieve that thing. It's interesting. I'm, I'm reflecting on there's another book that um, I've read in recent years called Never Split the Difference, where they take a different angle of trying to have conversations and these maybe maybe if it's, it gets into a negotiation or a confrontation of trying to provide the other party with the ability to say no because that is a comfortable position to feel like I can say no to something is as a way to feel good about it versus like feeling like they have to ag- agree to something. And so I think if you're just to offer maybe a counterpoint to that uh, can be another way. Are you saying you know you don't value <laughs> our time? You know. <laughs> No, that's not what I'm saying. And then, and so, I mean, it, I say that in like a, it's kind of like a, maybe a soft no, I suppose, in that sort of sense, but it at least gives them uh, the ability to, to have control or some agency over the, the topic at hand. Yeah, yeah, that's a little bit different because negotiations are kind of zero sum. There's, there's a limited pie, and you get some of the pie, and I get some of the pie, and it's a little bit adversarial. Whereas the, conversation with the stakeholder trying to make a case to to change the way of working that's not a zero sum you you genuinely both are on the same side of the table in that case and your your goals are the same at least in the big picture so that's that's one difference and fortunately that makes it maybe a little bit of an easier conversation than a negotiation sure so you already answered one of my other 
questions in terms of what books do you often recommend to people in the industry that aren't necessarily software books? Uh, are there any other books that you recommend to people as well? Yeah, a lot, but I'll mention only a few, I guess. Instead of mentioning a lot of specific titles, I'll mention some areas that I like to study. So I think philosophy and science are really valuable for programmers to learn because, okay, science, I, I'm like astounded sometimes by the failure of a lot of programmers who are supposedly smart and logical people uh, to think scientifically. And so if you read books about science and like learn how scientists go about their work, then that can make you a lot better at thinking and like one of the biggest dangers when we're working is fooling ourselves into believing things that aren't true. And science is all about the question of what is true. And so scientists can't afford to go chasing down paths of things that aren't true and fooling themselves into thinking things are true that are not. And so I've taken some lessons away from studying science. And so when I'm debugging a, a bug, for example, I can get to the bottom of it a lot more quickly than maybe I could have before I had studied that area. And then related is, I, I mentioned philosophy. So people might have a certain idea of what philosophy is all about when they hear that word, but philosophy is such a broad field. It encompasses almost every other area of study. But epistemology is one, epistemology and logic, which is maybe a subset of epistemology which again is how do we know what's true? And it's really interesting to like read about the formal, everybody has an intuitive logic, but then what does logic look like when we formalize the rules of logic? Okay, in order to come to a conclusion that is valid, we have to have premises that are true. And so that's super useful in debugging. I have these three premises and I'm making this conclusion out of it, but wait a second, are all three of these premises actually true? And if you apply that question rigorously, then a lot of times you'll find out, wait a second, no, my premises are not all true. Number two here is false because blah, blah, blah. That's super useful and that can make you a much faster developer. The last thing I'll mention, last two I'll mention real quick, history and psychology. So psychology is useful because we work with people and it's unavoidable that we have to, for example, convince a stakeholder to let us work on these important but not urgent activities. And then history, I like to read a lot of biographies because you can get lessons out of how people behaved and how they approached various situations. It's, it's not just history in school was like so boring because it's like an account of all these wars and stuff. But it's much more interesting to read about people's lives. And you can get genuine practical lessons that can be applied to your everyday life and work out of that stuff. Interesting. Another thing, uh, Jason, you know, I had been on your podcast a couple months back and we talked a little bit about music. Have you been able to start spending some more time playing music yourself? I know we had talked a little bit about trying to start a band in that process. And maybe during a pandemic is not the necessarily the best time. But have you been able to get back into music much lately? You know, I went and I tried out for a band. It was a 60s. Yeah, it was a 60s cover band. And they gave me a list of like six songs that I had to learn. And I learned them and I went and played with them. But the chemistry just wasn't quite there. And so they they said I could be in the band, but sadly I had to decline. So it's just solo. I've been focusing more on um, improving my piano skills lately. And so I've been learning some Christmas songs. Oh, 
seems like it's a good time for that. Uh, yeah. We're recording this in early December right now. Well, with that, uh, where can listeners best follow your thoughts and keep up with you on software development topics online? Codewithjason.com. Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Jason. Thanks so much for joining us. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you.